You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. A group of theologians out of Philadelphia produced an insightful piece of pop theology. The name of this group was the OJs, and their piece was For the Love of Money. And if you're not familiar with that song, I would bet that you are. It's the song that goes, Money, 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 money. Ladies, help me out. Oh, y'all on it. We're going to recruit for the choir pretty soon. It's that song. And this happened in 1973, and the OJs produced this song, and maybe you don't know the lyrics of this song, but I want you to hear the lyrics of this song by the OJs. It goes like this. Some people got to have it. Some people really need it. Listen to me. Why y'all do things, do things, do bad things with it? You want to do things, do things, do things good with it. Talk about cash money. Money. Talk about cash money, dollar bills. Why, y'all? For the love of money, people will steal from their mother. For the love of money, people will rob their own brother. For the love of money, people can't even walk the street because they never know who in the world they're going to meet. For the love of money, people will lie. Lord, they will cheat. For the love of money, people don't care who they hurt or beat. For the love of money, a woman will sell her precious body. For a small piece of paper, it carries a lot of weight. I know money is the root of all evil. Do funny things to some people. Give me a nickel, brother, can you spare a dime? Money can drive some people out of their minds. All for the love of money. Don't let, don't let, don't let money rule you. For the love of money, money can change people sometimes. Don't let money fool you. Money can fool people sometimes. People, don't let money, don't let money change you. It will keep on changing, changing up your mind. An insightful piece of pop theology, right? What I want to say is this, if in 1973, the OJs could have a word with the American public, I believe it is only fair that the Lord Jesus could have a word with his church this morning on this topic, money. We've been walking through a series called For the Life of the World. And what we have been talking about is the particular practices of the Christian life and the Christian church that are are a part of the history of the church, the way that the church has lived out its spirituality. And what we have tried to do through this series is show you this, that most people, when they think about the spiritual disciplines, when they think about the way in which they are to practice the life of prayer and meditation and scripture reading and study, when they think about all of these disciplines like fasting, oftentimes we approach these disciplines in the mode of spiritual narcissism. We engage these practices as if they're only for ourselves. But the fact of the matter, what we are taught in the scriptures is that God has given us these disciplines so that we will practice them for the life of the world. And it's no different when we come to the subject of giving this morning. And we come to what is a well-known passage in the Gospels. 
on the rich young ruler. And what I want to do today is I want to approach our text through two points. We're going to see the delusion of faithfulness. And we're going to see the direction of discipleship. The delusion of faithfulness and the direction of discipleship. So let's look at our first point. The delusion of faithfulness. If you look at verses 16 through 17, our text begins with a man who has come to be known as the rich young ruler. When you collect the way in which his story has been told across the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, same story is told. It's told in different ways for different purposes. But when you collect all the details, the subject over this man is that he is the rich young ruler. And this man approaches Jesus to ask a most pressing question of the day. What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus returns a question that is intended to get the man to stop thinking about good deeds, but to think more about a good God. He wants to shift his focus. And then he begins to do a spiritual biopsy on the rich young ruler. And Jesus says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And in verse 18, we see that there were... There, were a little, uh, there was a little bit of confusion on the part of the rich young ruler. And it's understandable. Because the Hebrew scriptures have a lot of commandments in them. And so this man wanted a more detailed expression from Jesus. A more detailed uh, delineation of what commandments exactly Jesus had in mind. And Jesus says, and we have to pay very close attention to this exchange that's about to happen. All right? Pay close attention. Verses 18 through 19. And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Now, the clarification that Jesus offers the rich young ruler is profound. If you see what's going on, when you come to the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments were historically understood as delivered on two tablets. The first tablet was our responsibilities to God. And the second tablet, our responsibilities to our neighbors. In response to the man's question, which ones do I have to keep in order to inherit eternal life? Jesus only gives commands from the second table. In other words, what Jesus is doing here is he is highlighting in his reply the man's question. And he lays out specific laws regarding neighbor love. He's telling the man, if you want to inherit eternal life, you must keep the call to neighbor love. But there's something else that Jesus does in this text that I think is profound. Jesus lists every single command on the second tablet, except for one. You shall not covet. And instead of you shall not covet, he replaces that final command with the summary of the second table. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it appears that what Jesus is doing is he's drawing a correlation between the man's failure to keep the commandments on this very point of his money. 
He's drawing a connection between the man's failure to love his neighbor at the point of his money. The man knew what the final commandment was. And just as he's expecting Jesus to say, and you shall not covet, Jesus says, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is prodding the man to think about the correlation between covetousness and neighbor love. This man has a blindness to his life. He's deluded as respects his faithfulness. And we see that in his response to Jesus. Jesus is trying to teach the man that it's at the very point of covetousness, greed, misuse of money, and accumulation that the man has failed to love his neighbors and has broken the entire law. The only way you break any one of the laws of the Ten Commandments is if you, if you break them all. How do you wind up living a covetous life if, if you fail to have no other gods before the Lord? If you make an idol out of your possessions and your resources. And it runs down through to break the law at any one point is to break the entire law. And Jesus is trying to get the man to see this. But the man is not getting it. The rich young ruler, notice, he responds in a sort of disappointment. All these I have kept. He wants a brilliant new insight. But Jesus gives him the same old stuff. Keep the law. But the man is deluded. He actually thinks that he has fulfilled the demands of neighbor love. But Jesus is teaching him that true neighbor love cuts more deeply and costs more than we typically allow it. He doesn't get to define it. Jesus is going to show this man, you don't get to define what obedience to the law looks like. I define it. God defines it. We see here, like notice how this man must have gotten here. He's looking around at the people around him and he's saying, well... Relative to them, I suppose I'm doing all right. I mean, they can't be doing much more. Jesus is saying, no, you need to think of this thing vertically. You need to think of this thing vertically. But watch what Jesus does. At this point, instead of telling the man that he has a problem with covetousness, instead of pointing it right out to him, Jesus is going to press in on the man and call him to prove that he's a law keeper. Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus says, if you want to be whole, if you want to be healthy, if you want to be well spiritually and in all aspects of your life, then you need to let it go. You need to give it away and follow me. You must follow me in giving is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is telling a man that there is no life in unbridled accumulation and consumption. There's no life there. It's like trying to get blood from a rock. There is no life in unbridled accumulation and consumption. No life. And what follows, y'all? What follows is one of the saddest pictures in the scriptures. And even more, it's one of the saddest pictures that unfolds regularly in American life. 
Verse 22, listen to it. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Are you entering into the picture? The man came face to face with Jesus. He's told that he cannot serve both God and mammon, and he chooses money over Jesus. He walks away from Jesus. He has stared love and generosity itself in the face. And he has turned and walked away in sadness. He wanted to serve both. But in the end, he will have neither wealth nor Jesus. Now, why does Jesus lay such difficult truth upon this man? Why does he lay such difficult truth upon you and I? Mark tells us that when Jesus looked at the man, he looked on him in love. And that's why he lays this difficult truth on him. And that's why he continues to lay this difficult truth on you and I, because he looks on us in love. And he knows that affluenza is killing us. It's choking the life out of us. It's killing our flourishing. And though so many people over the last decade have loved in their self-righteousness to write and write and blast the 1% for the way that they are killing the middle class, for the way that they're destroying American culture. And some have even argued in the magazine Salon, killing love itself. We have cast little eye upon our own hearts as as it regards our money. As it regards our spending habits, our accumulation, our hoarding, our idolatry. Because it's much safer to look on the sins out there than the sins in here. Jesus lays this on us, not because he's a killjoy, but but because he's the real joy. (laughs) You see, I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but it's getting good up in here. He is the real joy. And he wants you to thrive and flourish in joy. And he knows that money is a trap. It's a delusion. Jesus' sobering lesson comes after the man walks away in sadness. Jesus says, truly, I say to you. And anytime Jesus says, truly, truly, he's saying, for real, for real. (laughs) Truly, truly, I say to you, only with great difficulty, Will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven? Now, maybe you don't believe Jesus. Maybe the Apostle Paul. First Timothy six This is what the Apostle says. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Don't you hear the rich young ruler in there? Don't you hear so many of our friends and neighbors and co-workers in there who are killing themselves at the job, working the hours, working their fingers to the bone under the illusion that they're going to be able to buy What can only be given. It's a delusion. 
And this man is deluded. He thinks he's faithful on this point. And you know what we ought to take away from this? We ought to take a warning. Be careful if you stand, lest you fall. Be careful of too generous an interpretive grid on your own life. God knows my heart. Yeah, he knows that it's desperately wicked. He knows your heart, and that's why he warns you. That's why he warns us. We must not be deluded into thinking that we have a higher degree of righteousness and faithfulness than we actually have. It is a sobering text. It shakes us down to the core. When you, when you uncover the delusions under which you live. But we need to see the direction of discipleship, which brings us to our second point. The, del- the delusion of faithfulness and now the direction of discipleship. Do you notice what Jesus says in the text? Jesus says that it is difficult. Somebody say difficult. It is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Now, most everybody in here says, good thing I'm not rich. I'm going to give you a pro tip. He's talking to us. He's talking to us. Yes, we are rich. We are rich by any standard. Global, historic. We're rich. Jesus says it's difficult. And you know what? The more and more I think about it, the more and more I look at the American church, the more and more convinced I am that we have not reckoned with the difficulty. We have not reckoned with the difficulty of entering the kingdom. We've not reckoned with the difficulty of overcoming this idol. We've not reckoned with the difficulty of throwing away that old God called mammon, money, possessions. But why is it difficult? Why is it difficult for the rich to enter into the kingdom? I think it's difficult because the direction of discipleship leads us to many contrary ways of thinking and behaving. First, it's difficult because everything that Jesus is saying leads us to repentance. Neighbor-loving generosity, giving for the life of the world, must begin in repentance. And we don't like it. But listen to me. If you come into this church and, and during our times of confession, you say, God, I'm sorry for my materialism, my greed, and my selfish ways. But you do not move on to following Jesus and practicing generosity and letting go of an appropriate amount of your money. Then you have not repented. Do you hear what I'm saying? That is speaking into the wind. That's what repentance looks like. When you say, God, forgive me, I repent of my materialism and my greed. If you do not go on to the practice of giving, you have not repented. What you want is license, not true grace. What you want is fire insurance, not transforming grace. No, this all true generosity begins in repentance. And that's why it's difficult. Here's the thing. Greed and materialism are not victimless crimes, according to Jesus. They are against neighbor. Our greed is sin against our neighbors. Our materialism is sin against our neighbors. This is how Chrysostom put it. 
not to enable the poor to share in our goods, is to steal from them and deprive them of life. The goods we possess are not ours, but theirs. Gregory the Great, who, by the way, initiated the mission that led to the conversion of Anglo-Saxons. Gregory the Great. He says this, when we attend to the needs of those in want, we give them what is theirs, not ours. More than performing works of mercy, we are paying a debt of justice. I'm going to say that again. More than performing works of mercy, we are paying a debt of justice. This is just doing right. If you were to fast forward to the end of the story and to look at where the resources were, when you give to the poor, what they're saying is you're, you're behaving in the way that it was always meant to be. This is simply the way it was meant to be. This is justice, which is tied, tied to shalom, peace, wholeness, flourishing, not just for you, not just for me and mine, for all. This is, now listen, these examples of quotes like this in the church fathers can be multiplied many times over. These are just two representative ones. We must repent. That's why it's difficult, because we must repent and we don't want to. Another reason why it's difficult is because it requires us to draw richer connections to the gospel than we're accustomed to making. We have to actually meditate and be steeped in the gospel as it relates to our money. And that's hard because it starts getting too hot in there. We bail out. We bail out. Listen, if Jesus in the gospel, if Jesus chose poverty for himself, if Jesus chose Calvary for himself, if Jesus chose generosity for himself, surely he can prescribe sacrifice for us. Listen, we have to go back again and again to the gospel logic. If Jesus handled his wealth like I handle mine, where would I be? Robert Murray McShane was a Scottish preacher and pastor back in the day. And when he was preaching a sermon on it's more blessed to give than to receive to his congregation, he anticipated some of their objections and he applied gospel logic to it. This is what gospel logic sounds like. He says to his people, but some of you may raise an objection. Objection. My money is my own. Answer. Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where should we have been? What would have become of us if Christ had been as saving of his blood as some are of their money? Objection. The poor are undeserving. Answer. Christ might have said the same thing. They are wicked rebels against my father's law. Shall I lay down my life for these? But no, he gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection. The poor may abuse it. Answer. Christ might have said the same and with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more. Yet he gave his own blood. Objection. This is Robert Murray McShane. Listen, it's not me. It's Robert. Take it up with McShane. Objection. 
I am in very poor circumstances, or DC is expensive. <laughs> Answer, still you are a steward. Use what you have as a steward for Christ and you will do well. He that used two talents did not lose his reward. Now, I, I just ask you to look at the man who is sowing seed. When he has but little, does he keep back from sowing that little? No, he sows all the more anxiously the little he has in order to make more. Do you the same? How little you believe God. He says, he that gives to the poor lends to the Lord. How easily God can give you by the smallest turn of his providence more than all you give in a year. Oh, trust the Lord. Warm your heart by the fires of gospel love and give. Take all your excuses to the logic of the gospel and ask yourself where you would be if Christ had made the choice to do what you so desperately want to do. This is why it's hard, because we think we're familiar with the gospel and we are not. We think we're 401, but we're in preschool gospel. We think that because we can talk a little noise about substitutionary atonement, that we, we have absorbed and digested the gospel. But if you run through every facet of your life, every discipline, you run that through the grid of the gospel, you will realize you're in the kiddie pool. You're not fit yet for the 12 foot side. This is why it's hard. Another reason why it's hard. Because the direction of discipleship leads us to increasing generosity. I want you to hear the modifier, increasing. Somebody say increasing with me. I think that many of us live under the delusion of faithfulness because we have identified a fixed amount we stay there with no mind to going past it. Or that fixed amount is zero. And we lay up excuses. I like the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. This is what Lewis says. You notice I'm putting all the hard words on other people's mouths, right? <laughs> if you can't say it better, then quote it. Lewis says this. I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, and amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things which we would like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. In other words, you hear Lewis, he's saying it should hurt. It should hurt. How else are you going to share the sufferings of Christ in this way than, if, than, than, than to give till it hurts? <laughs> you see what he's saying? He's inviting us to start identifying luxuries and expenditures that we are going to put on pause so that we can become like Christ and follow him in generosity. I think that's not even a part of our grid in much of our thinking as it relates to giving. What we start with 
is our standard of living, which is swollen. And then we see what, what we can eke out for generosity. What Lewis is saying on Jesus' behalf is we begin with generosity and we adjust our standard of living in ways that are holy. <laughs> holy, separate, different, distinct. He says, if you look around and you notice that you're living the same kind of material life as your peers who know no gospel love, you're given too little. That's Lewis. Now, I want to settle the 10% tithe debate. I'm going to settle this. You ready? I'm going to settle it by quoting Augustine. This is what he said. He says, now listen for this, but buckle your safety belt. Let us give a certain portion of our money, Augustine says to his congregation. What portion? A tenth? The scribes and Pharisees gave tithes for whom Christ had not yet shed his blood. The scribes and Pharisees gave tithes. Lest happily you should think you are doing any great thing in breaking your bread to the poor. And this is scarcely a, a thousandth part of your means. And yet I'm not finding fault with this. Do even this. But I cannot keep back what he who died for us said while he was alive. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. He does not deal softly with us, for he is a physician. He cuts to the quick. The scribes and Pharisees gave the tenth. How is it with you? Ask yourselves. Consider what you do and with what means you do it. How much you give, how much you leave for yourselves, what you spend on mercy, what you reserve for luxury. It was Augustine said it. But Augustine is speaking truly here. Do you see what he's saying? Even the scribes and Pharisees, before they even saw the wondrous love of God in the gospel, gave a tenth. He's saying, don't pat yourself on the back. For that, we're on the other side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> Let your giving be shaped by that. Let that call you into self-sacrifice. Let that call you to die to self-indulgence. Let that call you to rise up and give generously, freely, lavishly, because he did first. You know what else is hard? Why, why it's difficult? Because discipleship leads us to seeking cross-cultural wisdom. But we, sh we are certain, we are sure that in the sophisticated West, we know more about economics than anybody in the third world. Anyone we designate third world, one day they'll grow up into our economic wisdom. But you got to know that it is those brothers and sisters in the global south who just might keep us from walking away from Jesus sad. Because they're able to give us insight into the depth of our sickness. Our affluenza is deadly and we need them to help us to see. If we were to invite the global church to speak into 
our money, our spending, the way we use our resources, the way we store up and hoard up and save. Do you have the courage to hear what they would say to you? It makes me nervous. I've done it before. I look like I fought Mike Tyson. I got beat up. Because things I thought were just like, it's normal, right? Like this is, this is a need. I need this. But it's only cross-cultural community that will really help us to distinguish the difference between wants and needs. So that we can meet the needs of others. It, the cross-cultural community puts a face on the poor. We need the poor in here. We can't talk all this noise based upon our socio-political vantage point about, about breaking down socioeconomic barriers while we give little. That's hypocrisy. We, if we're going to be true to our word and consistent about wanting to break down the dividing wall that has been raised up among us between rich and poor, then we must stop giving ourselves a pass for being about it when we only talk about it while we accumulate more. The only way we're really going to grow in this mosaic is if we dial in and we become an all the more generous community so that when folks come in here, we have the ability to really, truly and deeply care and raise them up and lift them up and support them in their struggle. We struggle with them. You know what cross-cultural wisdom does? It helps us to have an experience like the rich young ruler. You know what happens most of the time? We don't have an encounter like the rich young ruler had. We don't meet the real Jesus. We meet the Americanized version of Jesus, who's completely cool with, you know, moderate levels of greed. Who's, who's okay with moderate levels of materialism. Don't you see Jesus would be flipping tables all through America? Shudder the thought that he would flip ours, but we have to ask the question. We must let it search us. Do we want to follow Jesus in giving? We need our cross-cultural community. Discipleship, it's difficult. Why is it difficult? Because it leads us to the rejection of squandering wealth. Here's a question. How are we loving our neighbor when we blow our money on frivolous things and he's begging on the street? How are we loving our neighbor when we recklessly run through our own resources and he's rummaging through garbage cans? To recklessly spend, consume, and hoard what God has given us to help others is not to love our neighbor with our giving. To make our possessions primarily and exclusively the means for our own enjoyment or personal satisfaction is not to love our neighbor with our giving. We value in American culture the idea of someone being a go-getter. But you see what Jesus calls the man to in here? He wants him to be a go-giver. And he wants that for you too. Take, 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 consume, 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 consume. And we bring that mentality into the church. And we, what are the goods and services in here? Hmm, I may. No, 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 no. That's not the mentality of those who have been formed by the love of Christ. I'm going to say finally, finally. 
This is difficult. Why is it difficult? Because discipleship leads you to rethink providing for your family. This may be the hottest one. Listen to me. Our single brothers and sisters are asking us to rethink the boundaries of our family. The poor are asking us to rethink the boundaries of our family. And Jesus is asking us to rethink the boundaries of our family. Listen to how Augustine addresses providing for our families. He says, give Christ a place with your children. Let your Lord be added to your family. Let your creator be added to your offering. You have two children, reckon Christ a third. You have three, let Christ be reckoned a fourth. Keep the place of one child for your Lord. For what you shall give to your Lord will profit both you and your children. Whereas what you keep for your children wrongly will hurt both you and them. By all means, provide for your family. But you must define family like a Christian. Jesus reorders our thinking about family. Do you remember that time he was teaching? And they said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. And he said, who is my mother and my brothers? Those who do the will of my father. In other words, what I'm saying to you is providing for your family, if you're a member of Grace Mosaic, is providing for Grace Mosaic. We don't have to be shy about it. This is biblical. This is how we are to think about the family. And remember that other word of Augustine, that marvelous excuse, he calls it. I'm putting it back for my children and they put it back for their children and then for their children's children. And not one of them carries out the commandment of God. It's better to give your children an inheritance of generosity than loads of money and the greed that comes with it. In his sermon, Robert Murray McShane Closes with this paragraph. Now, this is the hottest one. It definitely is. It definitely is. McShane says this. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile and the poor, the thankless and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy. And so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And I fear that there are many who may be hearing me who may well know that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. This is what he says. Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. Enjoy it quickly. For I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. Listen, we could try to do a lot to drum up more giving here at Mosaic. We could get new software. We could feature our text message giving. We could do direct mail campaigns, email marketing. We could do more sermons on giving and, and give instruction. We could provide financial planning programs and, and giving envelopes. We can set up giving kiosks in the back and all that's fine. But this will only help a little and it'll only be temporary if we don't tell you who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, how Jesus has done it, and what Jesus is saying in this passage. The message today is you do not have to walk away from Jesus 
sad, my friends. There is hope at the end of this passage. It doesn't alleviate the word Jesus has just said, but it offers hope. With God, all things are possible. He can change your greedy heart into a giving heart. He can change your fearful heart into a faithful heart. He can give you courage to give, to give till it hurts, to give sacrificially, to give in love, to give in delight, convinced of the truth that we sang earlier today. You can't beat God's giving no matter how you try. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.